I want to uh, just share a few thoughts this morning, kind of piggyback a bit on Pastor Spencer's message uh, last week that I so appreciated, talking about that John the Baptist uh, generation. And uh, I was just thinking, just all the things that are taking place, of course, all that we've come through the last couple of years, and, and uh, it seems like there's not been a moment's peace. We go from that into, of course, the unrest in Europe and Ukraine and, and uh, what's taking place there and how that affects the world, how it affects economies and markets, and you're seeing it at the gas pump, you're seeing it everywhere else. But, uh, but, you know, in the midst of all those things, we're reminded that the Lord is at work. The Lord doesn't cause any of those things. God's heart for mankind has always been that there would be peace. Uh, that's why Jesus came, the angels declared, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That is God's heart for the human race. But he has also given us, of course, free will. So we make decisions as individuals, as households, as communities, as nations, and that we see where those decisions uh, leave us oftentimes. And yet, in the midst of all those things, we know God is in control in the sense that he's able in all those things, as Romans says, to work things together for the good to those who know him, those who love him. And so we know that God is working in the hearts of people. And one of the things that God is doing is that in the midst of all the things that are going on, he's allowing the world to be shaken. And out of that, as people are shaken, out of the routine, shaken to the foundation of things that they've come to trust in, things they pursue and, and chase after that really aren't all that important, as those things are shaken, then men's hearts sometimes are filled with fear, but also an awareness that there must be more to life than this. And people begin to see the fragility of the things they trust in and realize there's got to be something more. And so begins oftentimes their journey, or for those who know the Lord perhaps, even a journey back to the Lord and being more serious in their pursuit with God and, and firm in their faith. And so in all those things, we see that what God is doing is really the most important thing. You may remember that Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, he said, Father, this is life. If you boil it all down, this is what life is about. Number one is to know you. And number two, to know your son whom you've sent. That really is what life is all about. Everything flows from there. And so if that's not your understanding, if you don't know the Father, if you don't know the Lord this morning, a lot of the shaking going on is good because it's God's way of, of, of awakening you to uh, the blindness and the distraction that you've been pursuing that will lead you into a Christless eternity, separated from God. And as the old saying goes, God loves you where you are. That is, he will meet you where you are, but he loves you too much to allow you to stay there. He wants to free you, just like your children. Your children may go through a season of, of rebellion or whatever, but at some point you kind of begin to clamp down, not because they're hurting your feelings, but because you know they have so much more potential. You know that what they're doing is actually robbing them of life. And, 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 and God the Father, who loves us so much more and knows us so much better, uh, how much more does he want to do those things in our lives? So that is, I believe, a lot of what is taking place today, that in that shaking, even in the church, that is in Christians' lives, the Lord is returning the church and creating a hunger in the hearts of his people for a greater knowledge of him and ultimately for just a fresh visitation in the midst of his people that would not only change our hearts afresh and set us back on the right course, but also would spill into our communities and, and bring about uh, the answer that the world really needs. Well, in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet, uh, prophet of God to the people of Judah, about 600 years before the time of Jesus, Habakkuk was a, a prophet who, who uh, lived at a time, actually one of his contemporaries was Jeremiah. But during his lifetime, uh, the nation of Judah was going through similar things. 
in that around them everywhere, nations were at war. And they knew, or at least the prophet knew, that those nations were going to begin to encroach upon Judah and actually destroy the nation. Because the nation itself, for some time now, had turned its back on God. It had gone back into that cycle of rebellion and perversion and being like other nations. And they really should have known better. And so God was going to allow the nation of Babylon to come and to destroy the city and to basically carry the citizens away. And Habakkuk was disturbed by that, not so much because he, he didn't know that he knew that, or didn't believe they were deserving of the judgment that was coming, but what really bothered him was the fact that God would use a pagan nation to bring that judgment rather than just kind of, you know, letting things go south in the nation itself and hopefully people get their act together. Instead, he was actually going to allow another nation, which really on paper was more pagan or sinful than Judah was, to judge Judah in order to bring about that work that God wanted to do in their hearts. Now, of course, Judah was actually worse because having known God, they knew better. The Babylonians, other empires, didn't know God, so you might say they were less, less to blame in that sense. But that was the issue that uh, Habakkuk, the prophet, was struggling with, that judgment was going to come. And so he, he talked to God. He basically complained, in a sense, as he was talking to the Lord. But then he says this, after he kind of aired his grievances in chapter 2, that the prophet said, I will watch to see what he, the Lord, will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. You see, Habakkuk had questions. And it's a good reminder to you and me that when we have questions, the Lord is never afraid of our questions. He's never afraid of how we see things and how we may even sometimes, you know, shake a fist or accuse him. But he's wondering whether or not our hearts are humble enough to realize we don't know it all. We don't see the big picture. We don't necessarily have his heart on every issue. And so we can bear our heart to the Lord of what we perceive. But then like Habakkuk, we need to step back and say, okay, Lord, now that I've kind of gotten it off my chest, I'm going to sit here and allow you to teach me. Because I know I'm missing something. Because we sang this morning, I know you're good. I know you're holy. I know you love mankind. So this isn't lining up. So there's got to be something else I'm missing. And of course, he allowed the Lord to give him a better understanding of what was going on. And so the Lord does that very lovingly. And Habakkuk uh, comes away actually with a song in his heart, chapter 3, verse 1, that declares, God, come in your revival power. Because Habakkuk knew or he reminded himself that really what the nation needed, what the world needs is what Jesus said, to know God the Father and to know his Son whom he has sent. That's really what we need. As we look around us, as complicated as the issues may be, friends, it really all boils down to that simple fact, people need Jesus. That's it. People need Jesus. And may I just mention that Christians need Jesus too. Not religion. We need Jesus, a relationship with the Lord. And so that's really what he was saying. He was saying, God, work revival. Do what needs to be done because we realize, Lord, true change in any community, any nation, any city goes from the inside out. It starts one heart at a time. And so, Lord, work revival. Do what you have to do and begin by changing me, changing my heart. That's his prayer. And you see, the reason I say God work revival is because, at least in my understanding, I don't believe God sends revival. He doesn't send revival. Revival is the result of the people of God lining up with what the Spirit of God is doing so he can help us to prepare our hearts to receive. 
As Jesse shared this morning in the gathering, there's other, other places you can meet too to pray, but uh, in, in the gathering, the prayer time on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, what has happened? You have a group of people, and I know there's others on Tuesday evenings or perhaps for the week, but you have a group of people who are basically sensing God is stirring, God's doing something. In the midst of all this stuff, the Lord is speaking and he's drawing us, and what are they doing by praying? We're setting our sail. Lord, we, just, we sense the wind of your spirit blowing, and we're going to set our sail and, and, and hitch on to what you're doing, allow you to change our hearts so as you work in us, then when the time is right, as you know, you will work and bring us into what you were doing. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan was a British Bible teacher, author, pastor in the early 1900s. He put it this way, we cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven. When God chooses to blow upon his people once again. You see, the wind of the Spirit is blowing upon every single one of us in this room this morning. The only question is, are we just kind of, you know, waving it off? Or are we saying, I sense that. I sense, I sense the Lord's doing something. Lord, I want to be in on what you're doing. I'm going to set my sail for that wind. It's really the kind of heart that says like King David in Psalm 27. David said, my heart has heard you say, Lord, come talk to me. And my heart responds, what? Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming. Once again, the Lord invites every one of us here. There's no number one, number two, number three Christians. We're all number one sons and daughters of God. We all have the same invitation. The Lord says, come. Come talk to me. Walk with me. Know me. But does your heart respond like David? Lord, I heard you. I am coming. We're talking about revival this morning. The question is, does anybody really want it anymore? Do we really want it? I mean, we may want it when all hell is breaking loose and we're losing everything around us, but that's the wrong motivation. Do we actually want revival for what revival is in God's heart? You see, revival is a word that's full of meaning. It actually comes from an old Anglo-Franco word, revivre, okay? You know what that means, just to live again. That's the most obvious. But here's a couple of definitions of revival as well from the dictionary. It says this, number one, to restore from a depressed, inactive, unused state. There's a lot of depressed Christians. There's a lot of inactive Christians. A lot of unused Christians, people in whom the Spirit dwells. Also, it means the restoration of force, of validity established or effect. Rival, revival begins fundamentally with the discernment that it needs to happen in ourselves. That's where revival comes from. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, the time has come for judgment to begin. Will you read the rest with me? And God's own people are the first to be judged. You see, friends, we know this, but it makes no sense whatsoever for us as people who know the Lord to stand back, look at our society, whether we see the world going, you know, coming on fire with war, whether we see all the moral issues and all the different agendas from different groups that are tearing down the moral fire of our, of our, of our communities. If we just stand back and condemn, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's totally useless. You see, our world, those who don't know Christ, our society, our city, it doesn't need a revival. It needs a resurrection. You see, because the Bible says without Christ, you are dead in sin. But in order for there to come a resurrection in our community, there has to be revival in the church. 
In other words, we need to understand as the people of God that wherever we go, that we carry the fire of God. We carry the life of God and not just realize that cerebrally, but that we actually pursue that. That the wind of God's spirit is blowing, the fire is blowing. He's saying, I want you to carry my presence everywhere you go. But for that to happen, I've got to begin to work in you. I've got to get you cleaned out. I've got to get you consecrated. I've got to get you filled afresh that wherever you go, you can bring resurrection life. In the way that you speak, the way that you care, the, the way that you pray, the way that you minister to those who are around us. So revival needs to begin in the church for resurrection in our community. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What did Jesus do everywhere he went? What did he preach? He said, repent. Change the way you think. Change the direction you're going. Why? Because the kingdom is here. Everywhere Jesus walked, he brought the kingdom. And you know why he filled you and me with this Holy Spirit? The same Holy Spirit by whose power he lived and ministered? Because everywhere we walk, we are to occupy those two square feet of kingdom real estate. And everywhere we go, every room we enter, every situation, we bring the kingdom. And like Jesus, we can say, hey, repent. There's an option. There's another way. There's divine options here. Why? Because the kingdom is here. Because I am here and the kingdom is within me. Now the kingdom is available to you. Pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Hear me, friends. Jesus would never have told us to pray that if he didn't intend to do it. If he didn't intend to fulfill that through his people. We just need to remind it. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've no doubt heard the word backslider. You don't hear it as much nowadays, but I know when I was younger, we heard it a lot, especially when I first came into Pentecost. I mean, people backslid every Sunday. It seemed the same ones were at the altar every single week. I'm not sure the theology was good, but their heart was sincere. And then some of you know what I'm talking about. But a backslider is, is basically a person who once walked with Jesus, but at some given point, they turned their back and they began to walk once again in their own ways. Proverbs 14 describes it this way. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. What does that mean? I think it means simply this. Backsliders are people who were once emptied of their own ways and filled with God. But they allowed the old ways to seep back in over time until they were empty of God again and filled with themselves again. That's the backslider of heart. Now, you may be wondering, well, Pastor, am I one of those who've backslidden? You know, how do I gauge that? How do I know that? How do I know if I'm on that road or I've already gone that far? Well, there's a few indicators I want to share with you just in, in bullet form here. They're not, they're not 10 points. They're just, they're just bullet forms. Uh, but if you want to know, how can I gauge if I have allowed some of the old ways to seep back in or if they're starting to seep back in and I need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me again? Let me give you 10 real quick. Number one, prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life anymore. There's no really desire, real desire to commune with the Lord. That's one surefire uh, indicator. Number two, you're content with the Bible knowledge that you already have. You're content to hear something on Sunday, be encouraged. You've been in this church long enough. You know the stories, whatever, enough to get by, but there's no fresh revelation. You can repeat others. You've got secondhand revelation, but no firsthand revelation. And friends, there's no anointing without that firsthand revelation that the Lord gives to you. Number three, you're uncomfortable with spiritual conversations. Now, most of us are happy to talk about the Lord, but do you initiate those conversations? Do you look for opportunities to actually talk about Jesus? 
Another one, leisure and entertainment are a large part of your lifestyle. Friends, we've got to come to grips with this. We love the Lord, but like Paul said to Timothy, one of the sure signs of the last day's church that I believe describes the Western church to the T is that we are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We just love pleasure. We love pleasing ourselves, those endorphins. We look for things that just kind of make, you know, give us a high through the day, and we, we just don't get that from the Lord as we can. Another one is that sins can be indulged without resistance by the conscience. Things that we can do repeatedly. We know it's wrong, but it doesn't bother us anymore. Here's a key indicator that maybe you're in a backslidden heart, and that is that being like Jesus is no longer an aspiration. I mean, you know how maybe you should live, but there's not this desire, Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to be free of self. I want to die to self. Lord, live your life through me. Another one is financial gain and security. Preoccupy your thinking. And I, and I can't tell you how foolish it is in the midst of all that we're seeing around us. You talk about spiritual deception. In the midst of all we see going on around us, all the insecurity, all the shaking, and as believers, we still think, well, I can just find security if I make more money, if I just have more things, if I just continue along that line. And if before our very eyes, the Lord is saying, why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your time and your energy? You can't hold on to that stuff. I will give you what you need for your day. Don't buy into the lie that you need more and more and more and you do less of the kingdom. Uh, three last ones. You are not disturbed when the Lord's name is taken in vain. I think that's a really good indicator. I was sharing with folks in the, in the first service. I don't know if you do this. You probably don't. It's probably just me. But I find myself once in a while watching a program. And it's a good program. It's got a great plot. It might even be funny. I mean, it's clean or whatever. It's just got a great story. And I want to watch it. But then they say the Lord's name in vain. Jesus or Jesus Christ. That precious name to me. Now, because I'm a pastor, okay, because I'm spiritual, because my heart is sensitive and tuned to those kind of things, when I hear the Lord's name, what I do is I tisk. <sighs> Because I'm really hoping it's the only time they say that. Because the Lord understands. It's a good story. And I, you know, I don't really like it. It doesn't sit well. But I figure if I throw up a tisk, then the Lord knows I'm disturbed. And somebody in Hollywood probably registers somehow through the TV. You know, we heard some tisks out there. We got to cut back on the language. Okay, so I'll give it one more time. It's going good for another 15, 20 minutes, half hour. And there you go again. And it's totally unnecessary. Now, I've already used my tisk. So what am I going to say now? Well, I have my sigh. And I'll look at Vanessa and make sure she's sighing too so we have agreement. Yeah, we're both disgusted. But there's only about a half hour left in the show. And then I tell you, it's a really good show. Now, like I said, I know you don't do that, right? Right? You don't tisk, you don't sigh, okay? But what do you need to do? Click. Just need to shut it off. Now, I mean, we know well enough, to be honest with you, we don't drag it out like that over and over again. But there have been times. And I hope just being transparent, you can kind of relate. Yeah, I know what that means. But you see, what concerns me is that even if I turn it off after the second time, or if I end up watching it and it's happened two or three times, I feel dirty when it's over. I don't feel condemnation from the Lord. I just feel like, Lord... I've let you down. Like, I don't need that in my heart. I don't need to, I don't, you know, it's one thing for a person, like, I have no problem, for example, I'm out there and people are cursing and swearing, whatever. Sometimes it's refreshing, get away from the church staff where they're all perfect and proper. 
You know, get out among the sinners. There are one or two on staff, but you get out among the sinners and, oh, it's so good to be, you know, out where you need it. That's one thing. So don't go jumping on folks when they're cursing and swearing around you. You know, say what you want. But when I'm being entertained by it, that's altogether a different thing. I don't want to be entertained by that. Anyways, that's one of the indications, I think for me anyway, that my old ways are trying to seep back in. Last two, you're content with your lack of spiritual strength. Even though you carry the presence of God wherever you go, you're content that the kingdom's not happening around you. And finally, you no longer seek regular influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll put those back up at the end of the service. You want to take a snapshot or whatever. Uh, but just think about some of those things. Are any of those things true of you this morning, to whatever degree it may be? In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you're probably very familiar. Jesus talks to seven churches from seven different cities, actual churches that were in the time in his day in, in Asia Minor. And each one, uh, there's just certain things he talks to them about that he's, he's proud of. Hey, you're strong in this. It's great. But then there's also ones where he says, but there's also something that you need to give attention to. There's, there's an area where your old ways have seeped back in. And he's not just speaking to churches who actually represent our churches today around the world. He's also speaking to individual believers like you and me. So after he speaks to a particular church, every single time he also says this because he realizes, as we do, that a church is not just this faceless group. It's made up of individuals. And so having addressed the issue in the church, he then speaks to the individuals and says, to him who overcomes, I will give. To him who overcomes, I will give. Yeah, I see what's going on around you. Yes, I see your culture. I see your society, all that stuff. But listen, to him who overcomes, this is what you will receive. You see, every single one of us here this morning, we are in a personal battle with the powers of darkness. You've experienced that. You're reading the word of God, Ephesians 6, and so on. What's more, we also all move in and out of different seasons. We have different seasons where we feel stronger, sometimes under attack, feel a bit weaker. Sometimes everything is going great. Sometimes life is difficult. It's times of spiritual refreshing, times of spiritual dryness. We all have those different seasons, those different times in our lives. And if the reality is Jesus is saying, wherever you may find yourself, whatever you may be enjoying right now, whatever you may be enduring, whether in your home, the church, in the secret of your heart, the Lord says, if you are mine, you are an overcomer. I want you to understand that, okay? That's not just a cliche. You are an overcomer. What does that mean? It means you have the ability by the Holy Spirit who lives in you, by the Word of God that's available to you, the gifts and weapons that are available to you, you have the ability in every season to be faithful and to be fruitful. Whatever you are going through, whatever is coming against you, that stuff's going to change. But I have given you the ability to be constant in the midst of it. I have given you a strength. What is the strength? You see, we all know this very well. But what does our society promise? Go after this, get a hold of this, buy that, wear this, drive that, wherever the case may be, you will be happy. The Lord says, I didn't come to make you happy. Because you see, what happiness is, is making your happenings happen the way you want them to happen then you're happy. But what happens when they don't happen the way you want them to happen? You see, up and down. Jesus said, I give you my joy. I give you my peace. What is your joy, Nehemiah? Your, the joy of the Lord will be like strength to you. It doesn't fluctuate because it's in here. It's not dependent out there. But that joy only comes through relationship. 
Jesus commends his people in Ephesus and the church for not giving up in the midst of their suffering. And he says, the reason you haven't given up is, number one, you love the word of God. And number two, you have no tolerance for sin or evil in your life. What's interesting, though, is that Jesus says, yet there's still one more thing. You do not love me now as you did at first. Think about that for a moment. You guys are doing great. You're rocking it. I mean, you're just, you're just such a light in the testimony. But when I look at your heart, you're drifting. You've let some stuff seep back in. You're still great people, but you just don't love me the same as you used to. What he's talking about is, is basically the difference between routine and relationship. What is routine? By its very definition, it means no change right? And we like routine. Routine's not necessarily a bad thing, but if that's all you have, you're probably not going to change. That's what routine is. It's the same thing. But the, the appeal with routine as Christians to, to embrace this lifestyle rather than a fresh love for the Lord each day is that if I can get a routine together, I can control that right? I know what I'm doing through the day, through the week, through the month, whatever. I got all my ducks in a row. I got everything on the line perfectly balanced. Now, just don't let anything move, and we'll be okay. You see, that's the problem with routine. The Lord, you kind of kind of try to fit them in there, or you compartmentalize them. The Lord says, I don't want routine in your life. I want relationship. Oh, to that relationship, I will give you some routine. I'll give you guidelines, things to incorporate in your life. But you need to have relationship because relationship is what changes you. Anybody married? Anybody in relationship? That's what changes you in a good way. You're constantly tweaking something. You're learning something. You're growing in some way. Without relationship, there's no change. You need relationship. That's what brings growth. Jesus calls us overcomers, those who are faithful and fruitful. He says in verse 7 of, of uh, Revelation 2, To him who overcomes, I will give the fruit. I will give fruit from the tree of life and the garden of God, in the garden of God. The tree of life, the garden of God. Two beautiful prophetic pictures of what we're going to enjoy one day with the Lord forever. The tree of life and the garden of God. But they're also present realities that we get to enjoy in this life. For example, what is the tree of life or the fruit from the tree of life? To me, it speaks of spiritual nourishment. The Lord is saying, you get to walk with me. You get to commune with me. You get to draw on me. You get to, but my presence in your life to actually bring an element of life and understanding that actually brings you purpose and fulfillment. You see, when you have a relationship with the Lord, you're walking with him each day, you're journaling in your Bible, you're reading his word, you're meditating upon that, you want to listen to the Holy Spirit, you want to be changed to be more like Christ, what you discover when those dynamics that are real in your life, when you spend time with the Lord, he gives you understanding of what's going on around you. He gives you perspective of what's important and what's not, what's a waste of time, what to invest your life in, what to seek after, what to discard. It comes from that nourishment. And he talks about the garden of God, of course, that speaks to the friendship we're invited to enjoy with the Lord each day. In fact, if you were to reduce the Christian life down to its most basic essence, I believe the Christian life is simply this, to walk with God. That's it. Just to walk with God. And you see, if I have a relationship with him, then I'm going to be conscious of his presence, number one. But I'm also going to be conscious of those things I need to avoid because I know he can't participate in them with me. And I want him to be with me. I don't want to ever have to close the door and say, Lord, you just stay there while I go in and do this. No, see, that is love when I say, Lord, I just want to take you everywhere I go. Oh, that grieves your heart? No, that's not for me then. Feel a check? Oh, that's not for me. 
How do we return to that place to experience times of refreshing? I don't know if we have it up there or not, but John says in verse 5, he says, Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Remember from where you have fallen. What's he saying? Just consider your condition. Would you just stop for a moment? That's why quietness and rest, stillness is so important for our lives. The Lord is saying, I know all the demands out there, all the voices, everything pulling on you, everything promising things to you. Pull away. Pull away. Consider your condition. What's seeping back in? What's ebbing away? I'll show you those things you need to give attention to. Then he says, repent. That is, confess your need. We'll look at the scripture in just a moment, but Habakkuk says the same thing. Lord, man, I'm, I'm living in a time when your people are far from you and there's not much happening spiritually, but Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of some of the things I've heard and read about over the years that you've done in times past. Oh, Lord, renew them in our day. Do it in my day, Lord. And as you come, even with nations at war, and I realize that you must judge us because of our great sin to turn men's hearts to you, Lord, in your wrath, your deserved wrath, remember mercy. Remember mercy. You need to confess. Confess our need to the Lord. And finally, he says, return. Come back. Do the first works. We say that with me? Do the first works. Do the first works. The fundamental things we need to get back to. The Bible warns in Hebrews 12, we must hold on all the more firmly to the truths that we have heard or we may drift away from them. You know, when you look at the Bible, most people who failed in their lives, you look at Christian leaders today or prominent people, most people who failed in their lives failed in the second half. Everything was going great for a long time. But what happened? Old ways began to creep in. And then failure comes. Do the first things. Eugene Peterson's another Bible a scholar and author. He described revival in this way. He described revival as a long obedience in the same direction. Just consistent obedience with the Lord. You see, spiritual apathy and half-heartedness are always the consequence of dabbling in disobedience. What is disobedience? Disobedience is not just, you know, doing something you shouldn't do in that sense. It's not innocuous. Disobedience is actually the systematic, regular dismantling of obedience. Little things at a time. So there's the time when you're walking with the Lord and you're, you're in His Word, you're hearing from Him, you're obeying Him, you're walking in, in the kingdom, and you're established. As a believer, you know who you are, what you're about, you know what it means to be a believer. But you begin to let your guard down. You begin to let some discipline slide. You get away from reading the Word. You get away from those disciplines to give the, the Holy Spirit opportunity to speak to you. Let me just say this real quick. because You heard me say it before. For those who are new, a discipline is not a drudgery. A discipline is a means by which you actually experience freedom. Okay, if I'm going to go for a run, a 5K jog, I'm probably, you're going to find me like a kilometer down the road, huffing and puffing or laying in the gutter somewhere, right? That doesn't mean I can't run 5K. What does it mean? I have to practice. I have to discipline myself, cut out things that aren't important and say, I want to run 5K. And I guarantee you, because I've done this many times, within four weeks, I'll run 5K. Because I discipline myself. What is discipline? It enables me to do what otherwise I could not do. It enables me to do by training what I cannot do right now by trying. That's the key. And so discipline is actually a freedom, a means by which the Lord gives us to experience a, new, a newfound freedom. Obedience in the same direction, revival. Obedience is allowing the Holy Spirit to kind of cut those channels in my life that he can begin to fill me. 
one sure sign of drifting. The Bible says, and again, we must hold on all the more firmly to the truths we've heard so we don't drift from them. And one sure sign of drifting is that we lose that intimacy with God. It's no longer a desire of our heart. Fresh insights to His Word are no longer a priority. Worship itself loses enjoyment because that, that joy has seeped away. Some of you are probably familiar with the name John Wesley. He was a British revivalist in the 1700s. He was the founder of the Methodist movement. He called it Methodist because he believed that for the Lord to really work in our life in the way that he wants to, we have to methodically submit to those things the Holy Spirit's talking to us about. But in his last days, he wrote these words. He said, my fear is that our people will become content to live without the fire, without the power, without the excitement, without the supernatural element that makes us great. I'd love to have been alive in that day to see what they were experiencing. I'm sure it's everything and more than probably we've experienced ourselves. That's what Habakkuk was saying in his heart cry in chapter 3. He says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O God. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Some of you may remember this in closing, but about 20 years ago, there was a little girl named Erica. She's one year old. And she actually, in the middle of the night, in the dead of winter in Edmonton, you imagine how cold that is, she slipped out from under her mother's arm in bed, made her way downstairs, somehow managed to get out the back door. The door closed behind her, and she was stuck outdoors in the dead of winter. Her mother woke, didn't see her, didn't know how long she was gone, terrified, couldn't find her in the house, somehow managed to, to trace her steps or whatever, went outside, and there's little Erica, frozen, stiff, no signs of life. Rushed her off to the children's hospital, and somehow, by a miracle, they managed over time to revive her without any real serious lasting consequences. You know, when I read that story, I just think, some of us here this morning are the same. We've just kind of wandered away from the Father's house. Whatever the reason may be, whatever the enticement, whatever the busyness, and that fire that used to burn in our heart, that warmth, that joy, that pursuit of kingdom things, it just kind of cooled off. You know the beautiful thing is when you wander away from the Father, He notices right away, and He pursues you. Now, He's always with us, always pursuing us, but it takes us to turn and say, Father, I acknowledge that you're here. Forgive me. I open my heart to you again. I receive you afresh. And when we do that, He just takes our lifeless form into His hands, takes us back into the house, and breathes new life into us. And the Father's here to do that again this morning. It's about 150 years ago that there was a man who saw the moral decay not only in his community, but in the church. And friends, I mean this with all my heart. We need to stand in a way that gives direction and clarity to those who may ask as far as how would God have us live. But it makes no sense at all for us to kind of, you know, sit in the security of the church and look at the big bad world out there and everything going to hell in a handbasket and just tiss, tiss, tiss. It doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no point in that. And this man didn't do that either because he saw the same thing in the church. And he realized that something drastic had to happen if people were going to come back to God. His name was William Booth. He was a Methodist preacher, founder of the Salvation Army. And this realization so gripped his heart. I have his book, Darkest England, beautiful classic book. It so gripped his heart that he just went to fervent prayer for a long, long season. And under that fervency, he wrote probably one of my favorite hymns. 
and it's called Send the Fire. And let me just read you the first two verses of the musicians come. He said, O God of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Your blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire today. Look down and see this waiting host and send the promised Holy Ghost. We need another Pentecost. Send the fire today. I believe we're going to see another Pentecost. You know why? Because our culture is as broken and dark, as decadent as first century Rome. It's almost identical. And God has the answer. Verse 2, God of Elijah, hear our cry and send the fire. And make us fit to live or die. Send the fire today to burn up every trace of sin, to bring the light and glory in. The revolution now begin. Send the fire today. You know, those words have just as much meaning today as they did back then. The only question is, is that your, is that your heart's desire? Is that the longing of your heart? As William Booth shared for his generation, because I believe we've never lived at a time when hearts are more open to know the living God. People have no time for religion any more than we do. But people want to meet Christ. They want to meet a God of power and a God of love and majesty. A God who can actually set their lives on a brand new course. But you know, for that to really happen on the scale that it needs to, there's so many needs around us, it's got to happen here. We can't convince anybody else of their need for Jesus if we don't believe it ourselves. If he's just part of our life, heaven's taken care of, he's good to us, oh, he's good, and we sing a song. But basically, when we leave through the course of the week, we're just pursuing stuff, we're pursuing pleasure, we're buying more junk, we're, whatever the case may be, going after stuff. It's not about Jesus. But if it's really about Jesus, it's going to spill into the streets and the marketplace wherever we go. And we're going to see another Pentecost. I'm going to ask if they can bring that list back up. I want to take just a moment as the musicians play just to draw your attention to that list that I mentioned earlier, 10 things. You may want to take a little snapshot to take it home. But I want to ask you this morning as we close off the service, would you just be honest enough before the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, are any of those things true of me? Even at some level, small or great, has any of these seeped back into my heart? Because you see, you can't have both. If that seeps in, it displaces the, the Spirit of God. One stays, one has to leave kind of thing until we're full of ourselves once again. And we know all the lingo, but we're really empty of God, empty of Him in the way that we really can experience Him and share Him with others. So just take a moment. Go through those. If there's one or two, three things, just in these next couple of moments, just quiet your heart and say, Jesus, I'm just looking at my condition. And I just remember, Lord, where I used to be. Remember, Lord, where I want to be. And Lord, I repent of that thing or that thing. And Lord, I return to you. The Lord doesn't call us to duty. There is in that sense of being a military spiritually. But he calls us more than anything to devotion. To love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love others. That's what it's all about. To walk with God. And to carry him wherever we go. 
Holy Spirit, I pray, as I know you were doing already, that you would just drive home whatever it is you would speak to us individually. Lord, I just come against right now just any spiritual apathy, that unbelief, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, we just come against the enemy. We come against that spirit of indifference, that drifting. I pray, Lord, for a soberness right now. Because, Lord, you're here to set us free. You don't want it to drag on any more than we do. Bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. Bring that alignment to our lives. You've given us many things to enjoy, but never in place of you, Lord. Bring that alignment, Lord. Let us seek your kingdom first. Walk in your kingdom first. Minister your kingdom first. Bless you, Lord. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. For full services, head over to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's happening here at GT. God bless.